Hey guys, it's Nick here. Um, I got some bad news. We did an entire episode and forgot to press the record button on the audio. Uh, we still have the video, and so I've taken the audio from James's iPhone's video and tried to salvage it. And I'm not an audio technician. I did my best. I apologize for your ears. Uh, but James and I both felt that it was a good episode, and hopefully you can still enjoy it. And we'll be back next week. Definitely with some crispy audio then. All right, let's get to it. Instagram 
Instagram, and I'll have to, maybe we'll have to shout them out on the next podcast, but somebody on Instagram told me that one of their professors called these kind of prototypes pretotypes. Oh. Like, because like, it's like, not... Like Cheeto types? Exactly. Because there's Cheeto... Because at the end of it, there's you just have, like, you just have <laughs> crumbs all over your... Yeah, dust all over your... Blue foam dust all over your blue fingers. Blue foam dust, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, this idea that, like, a, a real prototype is something that probably looks and maybe functions a little bit like what you design, whereas these are super rough. Yeah. Um, but what we did in this episode was we kind of took found objects. So in this case, we used soda bottle tops right. and cardboard to make like uh, an even more representative model right. of of the uh, the helicopter. So I it's, recommend. It's, it's crazy what you can do with just trash. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to go out and buy some fancy phone or like whatever. You can just like dig up some actually everyone has amazon boxes laying around their house yeah oh absolutely no there's there's so much there's so much free prototyping material out there like you don't have to get anything fancy to work through because like the one thing that it really revealed was this thing that i've kind of always known i need to figure out about the design but it kind of took me a step closer to figuring it out which is how to attach, how to really like make this one part, which I call, we call the PCS, which right. is the pro- propeller containing feet. Right. How do that, how does that all assemble? And, just and, then, and how is it manufacturable? And being hands on with it, you feel like you figured it out. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm a step closer. I don't know that I figured it out, but that's the thing about the series is like taking things a step closer towards the final fidelity to figure it out. Um, but yeah, and you know, another thing that I realized about this, and this kind of goes in tangent with our last topic about kind of slow design, right. is like the idea that even if a model is gonna take you, I don't know, this model, like the total amount of model time was about an hour and a half. But one thing that doing a model like this allows you to do is kind of meditate on your design right. while you're making it. Because the thing is, is like if you are just doing it in CAD and then printing it, you're not really thinking about it in the same way. Yeah, and I find a lot of times when you're hands-on with something like cardboard or paper, you can you can almost stumble upon solutions that you right. can't in CAD or 3D printing. Yeah. It's kind of like something can just appear without even realizing it. Right. And I feel like there are a lot of studios, smaller studios right now, exploring that that same idea, whether it be visibility or yeah. Jamie Wolfhound. Right. I mean, I think it is it is kind of a, a, a valuable part of the process that I think maybe people are ignoring now more than ever because of how accessible 3D printing is. That is kind of interesting. Maybe it's on a on a decline because 3D printing is so yeah. accessible. So yeah, but um, go check out episode two. Um, Andrew once again knocked it out of the park with the you know we recorded for about three hours in total between all the talking. We took a break in the middle, and uh, he cut all that down to 25 minutes. And again, like that's awesome. Yeah, we'll put it into it. So anyway, um, and then one more piece of news. Keep going, James. Oh, I have no news. I'm on, you, so. I'm on a roll. Uh, last night, uh, Allison and I went to this opening for this thing called, I think it's pronounced Mophie, but it's the Museum of Future Experiences. 
Okay. And I got a message on Instagram about this and they said, hey, you know, we like what you do. Would you be interested in coming and checking this out? You know, like, you don't have to pay anything. Okay. Like, come check out the experience. Let us know what so you like think a, about it. Is it like a press event? It, it was like a soft opening, soft I guess. Okay. Um, and so now it is open to the public so you can get tickets. But um, it's very cool. It's, you know, I don't want to give too much away about it. I mean, it has to do with virtual reality. Oh, okay. And it is, I would say, kind of a theatrical experience. Interesting. And it's theatrical, like, the minute you walk in the door. You know, like, everything is, is kind of... It, like, do you know, think this is like one of these, uh, like more Instagram type of scenarios where, um, you know, like the Museum of Ice Cream, mm -hmm. familiar with that, and how there's like now these Instagram experiences where you walk in and you mm -hmm. see these things that you can take photos of. Is it like that or is it different? Well, here's the thing: you can't take photos past. I don't know if they're going to change this for the actual opening, but you can't take photos once you actually enter into the like the real experience. Okay, What's you like. Well, because you have, there's like kind of a waiting room area. Do you have to, it, it, do you have to like walk around? Do you put a VR headset and walk around? They, no. No, there's none of, there's none of that. Okay. But, and yeah, like I said, I don't want to reveal too much, but it's, it's like, like you're teasing, it, you know? it is an entertainment experience. Interesting. And how, how long did it take? It was in total, I think like we got there 15 minutes early. They told us to get, us to get there 15 minutes early. And then like, we also afterward, we kind of like sat down and discussed the experience with other people in our group because oh. it, it's groups of six that go through. This is interesting. Yeah. Huh. So it was, and the coolest part was like the people that we went through with are 3D, like AR, VR artists. So okay. they were like, they were much more in tune with a lot of the stuff that was going on. Nice. And so they were asking really interesting questions. Okay. But yeah, I would definitely, I don't know. I, I thought it was a really cool experience. Would you recommend that I go? Absolutely. Okay. Because yeah. I like, I'm a VR boy. I know you are a VR boy. I'm actually in VR right now. This is just <laughs> I want to, yes, I don't actually exist. I'm not, this is, I'm a figment of Nick's virtual imagination. Um, James Condon, the designer, is a, is a farce. but. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I would actually be really interested to hear your point of view on okay. it, given like how immersed you are in the world of VR. I'm gonna check this out then. Yeah, Museum of Future Experience. Yeah, so uh, it's down in Soho in New York. So if you're in the area, um, I would recommend it. Cool man. So yeah, that's uh, that's it. That's all I got. That's good because I have nothing this week. I didn't do anything. You went. Wait, I I'm reading something, I but I but I don't believe it. I well, see it, but okay. I don't believe Combat it. I, I did do something this week, and I know this is gonna it's it's a big thing. I exercised for the first time in two years. I went for a run. Yeah. Yeah. And. Um, it was how long? How far of a run? Like two miles. It was it two was blocks. No, two miles. Two miles, James. Okay. Avenues. Have a little bit more faith in me. Two miles. Because yes. you used to run cross country when I you did. were younger. I, in high school, I ran a lot cross country, and in Texas, I did a little bit of running, like on the weekend. When you had to advance, involve your Pokemon, right? Yes. <laughs> did I, have I talked about that? Oh I'm yeah. Sorry, yeah. Did I talk to you about that? You right. talked to you talked on the podcast about it. I'm pretty sure. Right. Yeah. When Pokemon Go came out, I got a lot of exercise. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah. No, I uh, did. Wait, is this is the reason no, you I, did because you downloaded? No, uh, I did not know. I did not download Pokemon Go. No, the Harry Potter one. No, uh, there's a Harry Potter one. Yeah, there's a Wizards. Like I forget what it's called. It's it's like a Wizards Go. Wizards Go. Wizards Go. Why did you? So is there? So there's a Pokemon Go, but now it's Harry Potter. Right? There's a Harry Potter. What's it called? Wizards Unite. Oh. Yeah. Oh, and it's like by the same company. Is it by the same company? Uh, I'm not. I think it might be, but according to The Verge, the Wizards Unite is missing the Pokemon Go magic. Okay. Well, anyways, all I all I was saying is like, I think. Uh, I don't know. I've been just trying to like experiment with my life, try to be a little more healthier, try to get some more balance in there. Mm. As you know, my that life is a little bit unbalanced. I say just because I design too much sometimes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. That was my experiment of the week. And but well, I I think what the people want to know is how did you feel afterward? I feel great. Yeah. I mean, I've ran before. I know that it helps me. Yeah. Like, I, I I realize that it is. Did you feel like you it like cleared your head? Yeah. Like you know, caused you to think. Like, are you getting more sleep now? Is that a part of this whole thing? I think that's definitely something that would happen if I did it more consistently. I just ran once. Well, no, I just mean in terms of your experiment on your lifestyle. Like, are you getting more sleep? Like, is that a part oh, of this? Uh, no, I think I'm getting consistent. No, I, I usually do get about seven to eight hours. Of sleep. Okay. So, um, All right. I'm not terrible. I'm getting I'm getting better at that part. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's great. I I really need to get back into exercising because I've I've fallen off the wagon, um, the wagon of treadmills that <laughs> used to carry me around New York as I would be running. <laughs> that's a weird wagon, James. It's. <laughs> You know, you gotta catch it when it comes by. Uh, if you're not prepared, you'll miss it. Um, speaking of uh, back to VR, this is Nick from the future speaking. <laughs> back to VR. Um, no, I, I did want to put in here a little bit of a, uh, not a disclaimer, like a, a note maybe? A note to future listeners. Mm -hmm. So I, I realized that uh, there are now people listening to the very first episode for the very first time. Mm -hmm. And we are on episode 64 now that we're talking about it and lots of things have changed. Yes. So if you're listening to this right now and it is not the newest episode, go listen to the newest episode because you know, three years from now we're probably going to be doing something crazy yet different and you know, instead of sending us an email for questions, you have to send us a VR message or something like that. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know, just, just check out the most recent episode uh, just to see what we're doing and then you can go back and start from the beginning if you, wherever you're at. Interesting. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. It doesn't make sense now, but I think so. You're saying if somebody stumbles onto our podcast and it happens to be episode sixty-four, right? Like someone right now is listening to this in our future words. Yeah, and it's twenty twenty-two, and Kanye's president, and <laughs> and you know they just need some advice. And what I'm saying is that in twenty twenty-two, we are doing a completely different do you minor details show now, and they need to go catch up on the lap. Latest one, right? So that they know what. What would so that they're in the group because we started with Discord, right? And the people that listen to the very first Discord are not on this just on the Discord. Now. What would we have to do in order to get President Kanye to listen to our podcast? Well, we're only one. We're only one person away. We have connections. I know, but I, at the same time, I'm I'm not interested in abusing connections. If it makes sense, it makes sense. If it benefits both parties. But I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to ask and beg for our connection to show our podcast to Mr. West. Do you think it, here, here you go. Do you think we have more, more chance of getting Kareem Rashid on the podcast or Kanye West? I think right now Kareem Rashid. 
I don't think Kanye West is too far fetched though. But I I think you're out of your mind. I think I think you <laughs> need to go. Kanye West is also out of his mind. So I think, think you, I think you need to go for another run and think about what you just said. <laughs> oh man, James, you have, to have high aspirations for this podcast. I do have high aspirations. I've been sliding hard into those uh, Karim Rashid DMs. Um, so yeah, go listen to our most recent episode if you are not up to date. Um, also. Uh, let's rate our iTunes five stars and um, add a little review, guys. Uh, I always say that at the very end of the podcast, but I wanted to put it in here just in case some people cut it off uh, the podcast before we get to that point. So, yeah, give us five stars on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Give us a little, write a little note. That would tell us what you like about it. That would be spectacular. And yeah. we appreciate all the support that you guys have given us thus far and any of you who have already rated the podcast. Speaking of support, we got pins. Oh, we have pins. Um, yeah, buy a pin. We'll shout you out on the podcast. Yes. For the price of whatever is $12 <laughs> in the country of in which you are listening to this podcast, you can support our podcast by buying a pin. Yeah, nice little swag. Um, yeah, Discord. Discord's been going well. I wanted to just do a little update on the Discord because, um, you know, last week we talked about this kind of slow design slash letting your design distill and kind of mm -hmm. sit around and, and kind of like what you were saying, you kind of understand the concept a little bit more when it's a physical thing. Right. Um, I thought we had a good comment on the Discord from ID Mitch and they said, I was thinking, um, Oh, wait, oh, ID Mitch says, on the slow design slash design incubation thing, isn't it better to release a minimal viable product as soon as possible and then refine it in the next iteration if it works? It's kind of a form of an incubation as you can test the market uh, with a minimal viable product and then kill it if it doesn't sit well with people. Um, and then I guess this just depends on what kind of thing you're designing. But I thought this was a good comment because I think it kind of was the con like the counter argument to the pop last week's podcast. Right. I, you know, I hear minimal viable product all the time and I think I understand it, but is there a good solid definition that we can give well, to me and the listeners? Yeah, I think the, the idea of a minimal viable product, at least it definitely is a much more, much more common term in UI UX, mm -hmm. where someone just tries to make an app as quickly as possible just to see if people are interested in it. Right. But it's a little bit harder to do with physical products, right? Because you have to actually manufacture. Well, it's, it's still something that you can do. Though. Yeah. You can make like small runs of prototypes and get it in hand right. to people and have you test it. I mean, that is the thing right now with a lot of the rapid prototyping methods is that you can get right. these things out there and into people's hands. Right. And actually a product that we've worked on together recently. Which we'll it's, eventually talk about. Yes, which is about to a launch, I believe. It's like the the one that, yeah, it is 3D printed. Right. These, these parts are 3D printed, so it is. It's definitely being more a, a much more common thing now than it used to be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's all about like getting the bare bones or something just to see just to see if it has legs. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, I kind of do think that that is, it's maybe a better approach than sitting on things. I mean, maybe there's, 
I don't know. Maybe there are advantages to one over the other and vice versa, but... I also think there's like a mixture, right? Like, yeah. you know, you can produce a minimal viable product kind of like what we talked about in last episode where we produced the prototypes. And it is like a minimal lab product. It was like a quick prototype that we did and then we just let it sit there. Yeah. And, you know, review it and, and kind of think on it. Um, but yeah, I, I think definitely in, in terms of like corporations and companies, this is a much more, uh, I don't know, seems like a much easier way to convince a company to make something. Right. Because, you know, going to your boss and saying, hey, I gotta sit on this idea for six months is not the- No. Not the easiest. Definitely thing. not. Yeah, I think in a, in a business setting, it probably makes more sense. Right. I think I think my one counter argument to this, to ID Mitch was all about aesthetics, right? You know, when you release a minimal lab product as quickly as possible, you don't have time to kind of mm-hmm. let your subconscious fine tune the aesthetics. Right. Because a product will function and you'll get feedback on it, but a user's not going to understand the nuances of those aesthetics. Yeah. So that was my one missing point. You know, something that I wonder is like, I think we can all kind of imagine like, you know, within a short amount of time, if we were working on a certain type of product, we can kind of imagine how we would like it to function. And maybe this is a bigger topic for another day. Like we can imagine like how in the optimal world, this thing will function. But a lot of times I think what we encounter is like we have to make sacrifices and maybe that's where we need to test things is like are the sacrifices acceptable to like what we would actually consider to be the best solution are you saying that a lot of times we feel like we're making sacrifices but really like i feel like a lot of times aesthetically you have to make sacrifices for functional aspects. Even functionally, I think you sometimes have to make sacrifices just maybe because the, the technology isn't there yet. Right. And and we think about the, like for example, like, you know, the iPhone. Yeah. The bump, the camera bump. Right. Was, I'm sure that the Apple designers were crying when they first <laughs> had the camera bump. Because what, yeah. what was the first... Was it the iPhone oh, 5? I feel like we have we <laughs> touched this topic I'm like sorry. every single time. No, I I think it's I feel like it's the six. Yeah, it's the six. So they added the camera bump because it's a they wanted to have a much better camera, so a functional thing. But aesthetically, it now has a bump on the back. Right. And your argument is saying that. A user doesn't really care, but as, well, a, as, a, as a designer, we care. My argument is, is that the only reason that you might have to test something is, I mean, obviously, if you are trying to propose that a large swath of the market is going to be interested in purchasing your product, like, and you have to prove that, then maybe you have to test. Right. My point is, is that like, the only reason I feel like you have to test something is if you've had to sacrifice something along the way where you're unsure that people will be willing to adopt it mm. because of that sacrifice. Right. You know? So, cause, cause like, I, I just feel like I can imagine if I'm working on something, I can imagine how I'd like it to work and like how I can make it optimally work. But maybe because of my inexperience with tech, 
or whatever it is, like something's just not possible. Right. And uh, so then like you have to test to see what people's tolerance of that sacrifice is. I think, or, I think people are, are much more accepting of those things yeah. than the designers, but I think that's a good thing. Like, oh, I think yeah. that's, why, that's, that's our job. I think, yeah, I think our job is to, is to be so critical of something that there's no possible way, like even the harshest of critics. Right, our job is to fight for the minor details. <laughs> with, with this emblem in the middle of our spandex jumpsuits, we are Ooh, we should get we are the minor detailers. We get some uniforms and wear them every single. Oh episode. no, this this is getting all right. It's getting right. oddly fascist. Um, <laughs> design news. I think we we have a lot of design news. So we might just do a whole design news episode. Right. Um, I thought the one thing that was interesting this week was Nike came out with a new shoe, the Nike Joyride, I believe, and it. I, you know, I, you know, I'm not a big shoe guy, right? I have one, two pairs of shoes. Yeah. And maybe three. Um, and when I saw this shoe, I thought it was so unique because it, it has a really functional aspect. So, or, or at least that's what it seems. Um, it's, you know, just a Nike running shoe and the sole is filled with these tiny little rubber beads and they're free floating. They're kind of like encapsulated in some sort of pod and insert it into the soul. So when you run, it's kind of like you're running on sand or like on dirt or grass. Yeah. Because the beads kind of move and conform to your foot. Yeah, and I feel like there's all this kind of debate within the running community over whether like, you know, there were those Vibram, like the the, the toad yeah. shoes uh-huh. thing. And it's like, should we be running barefoot, almost barefoot, like like our ancestors did, or is actually like the cushioning that we're putting in our shoes beneficial to like the longevity of somebody who's a runner? Um, that, that, that was one of the things that they were talking about was a, a kind of a, a driving force in this new shoe called Joyride was it's more about the recovery shoe hmm. because all the other running shoes out there try to make you run faster and give you more of a bounce and return some of that energy to your run so that you can run farther and longer. Yeah. Um, or, maybe, or maybe just faster. But Joyride was all about, hey, cushioning your foot, imagining that you're running on grass instead of the sidewalk. And you know, maybe, maybe you don't run as fast, but you can do the marathon because you aren't hitting the ground so hard. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. It looks like there's been some criticism of Nike over this because of the beads. People are saying, like, is this, you know, like you're putting a bunch of plastic beads in a shoe. Is that really, like, a sustainable choice? What about the plastic that's not the beads? Right. The whole shoe is plastic. Right. But uh, Nike released a statement. Nike is committed to creating more sustainable future and protecting the future of the sport, like all athletic footwear. Joyride can be recycled through Nike's reuse a shoe program and transformed into new products. I think, uh, yeah, I think I was reading that as well, that they take all the, the, the offcuts or the, they take the waste from manufacturing the shoe, grind it up and use it to create uh, tracks, running tracks. Mm. Well, it sounds like they're using the whole shoe. 
Like it sounds like they are Nike. taking taking in shoes Nike. and recycling them. We use a shoe program. I yeah, gotta look into this. Let's look into it. This is live. This is live. live, live. <laughs> um, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I don't know about that criticism. It seems a little bit cheap, honestly. Hollow. Yeah. Just to say, oh, you're putting plastic beads in the shoe. Like, come on. Like the shoes are already made of plastic, right? And all the shoes are. I don't know. Right. Um, I mean, like, like I've said before, I think, I think people should feel more optimistic about these larger companies because they are responding to consumers' concerns yeah. and implementing, like, you know, Apple's recycling program. This is really cool, and only these big companies have the resources to figure these things out. Right. Um, and so, like, I think this is actually like super exciting to see these companies doing things like this. Like, I, I don't know. I'm I'm very much more opti on the optimistic side For of sure. things. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like you just have to be optimistic in life in general. Right. There's, and there's a lot of bad news out there, and you can't let it get to your head. You know? Yeah. But uh, I I think it's a pretty it's a pretty cool, pretty radical design. The reason, the, here, here, can I just tell you the reason I, yeah. like, I like the shoe? Because I don't talk about shoes a lot. Right. You're the shoe guy. You're always put the shoes in it. Um, I liked it because it seems like a very functional and logical solution. Right. Whereas when I think about other shoes that have been marketed to be, you know, the new cushion or the new running way, I think about, like, what is it, uh, the Adidas Boosts, mm -hmm. where it's kind of like this styrofoam looking right. piece. It's just like, yeah, I mean, maybe it's better, but we, like, you're just yeah. saying it's like a, a material thing. This is like a physical design attribute right. of like spheres moving around. I, yeah. I just thought that was cool. The other, th the other, the, the other concept that kind of is a similar to this is the, the Adidas 4D craft. What's it called? Oh, right. Where, where the shoe is, shoe is 3D printed um, and it has certain areas that are stronger than others and has this lattice structure yeah. which is a very functional it feels very functional right whether or not it is or not I don't know yeah but that's why I really like this new Nike Joyride because it just felt really functional yeah yeah it feels it feels functional it feels fresh the thing that I have been thinking a lot about and I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast but recently like in just thinking about aesthetics and thinking about industrial design aesthetics like I I love the overall aesthetic within the shoe industry, which is all aspirational and optimistic. Whereas I feel like in the industrial design, like industrial design aesthetics currently, I would say broadly are more, I don't know if I want to say like cynical, but you know, they're, they're more of that like minimal approach. Yes. And we kind of talked about this in that episode about what consumers like and value, but it's like, it is something that I envy about the shoe design world. That is and, interesting. And I mean, I guess it's also kind of in car design as well, but in product design, you just don't, I don't know. Like, shoe, yeah, shoe design is so out there right now. It, yeah. It, I feel like whatever we're in right now feels like a renaissance to me. I don't know if this was like this in the early 2000s or the 90s. Yeah. But maybe it's just, and, they just they just seem to be really like ready and and willing to like adopt and utilize new technologies for performance. Do you think it's because it's a soft good? Maybe. I mean, that is like 
it definitely lends itself to a faster, a faster iterative process yeah. than like having to cut tools and right and and make injection molded parts. But yeah, I don't know. It's just like I don't, it's something that that I've been thinking about a lot, and I don't I don't know where it fits in with industrial design. Yeah, I mean, it's also much harder to fit. Like shoes are also a less the, the product lifespan of a shoe is right. not as long as a hard product. Yeah, for sure. Um, but who knows? Once, once uh, if if we can get recycling programs a little bit more, I don't know, efficient. Like, you know, maybe it would be okay to make industrial design products that people toss toss yeah. out every three years yeah. and then we can do things that are more of the moment than to last right. your life. I mean that kind of that kind of rolls into the next design news. Yeah. Um, these recycled Olympic medals that you saw James. Right. I guess these are for the Tokyo 2020? They are. 2020 they are indeed. Coming up in Tokyo which, with uh, the first ever skateboarding competition. I'm excited for that. That's pretty awesome. But so the story behind these is I believe that they took, yeah, so they were manufactured using the precious metals extracted from mobile phones and other small electronic devices donated by the public. Which, you know, it's a it's a and a very interesting story and it's a great story. But it did, it reminded me of something that one of my professors told me in college. This was actually a project that uh, Rach Legal, Oscar, Oscar Salguero and I were, were working together on, which were these uh, shoes for uh, Haitian children. Right. And we used, we used recycled um, bike tires right. for the soles. And so like, you know, we thought we had this great idea with this whole like recycling thing, but you know, the thing is, is that the people that we were giving these shoes to deserve the dignity of not giving right. given an item that screams like, I've been recycled. Like if you were a kid and someone gave you this recycled shoe and it had a bike tire on the bottom, I'd be like, no, I want some Nikes. Right. And so, you know, uh, our professor Akshay, Akshay Sharma, his challenge to us was like, you have to make this not only like, you know, just like a viable product but it also has to be desirable. And like, I think we did a pretty good job, you know, as students, we, we, did, our, we did our best to make this like a beautiful shoe. Not, none of us were shoe designers, but we were very concerned with that idea. Like, let's not just give these kids like, hey, here's your bike tire shoe. Right. And so I, what I applaud about this medal is that like, you wouldn't even have to tell me that story and just show me the medals, and I would be like, "This, this is a beautiful yeah. award." It's kind of, I mean, this. I don't want to dive too far into the whole sustainability thing, but like, it's kind of almost unfortunate that that. I guess I don't know if it's unfortunate, but it, it seems like the sustainability, like recycled aspect, overpowers the fact that these are actually nicely designed medals. Right. Like, I feel like the design should be nicely designed before you can talk about recycling. Yeah, I think the recycling story is like a cherry on top yes. of this someday, which is that like whoever designed these did a, like a beautiful job of doing so. I feel like a lot of times there there is that trap of making the recycling like the whole product, right? Like making it 
the story of the product. Yeah. And you do, I feel like you do lose something. Yeah. I feel like it almost does the whole system injustice because people don't want, like nobody wants a recycled looking product. Right. You see all these like student, I don't know, students <laughs> on the bus, but a lot of times you see the, the classic like bunch of melted plastic kind of right. put together and it looks kind of weird looking. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, we could. No, I, I, I agree with you. I think like you need to have a beautiful, desirable thing first. Right. And then it's, oh, it's recycled. That's, that's even better. You know, like, the, like apples recycling aluminum type of thing where it's yeah. like, it's a beautiful product and then they also recycle the lemon. Also, I, and, and I don't know, I think we talked about this on a, on one of the episodes when Apple kicked kind of did their whole PR stuff with the aluminum recycling, but aluminum, aluminum is one of the most recycled pro, uh, materials. Yeah. It's very easy to recycle. Yeah. Um, so most aluminum is already recycled it to begin with. Right. Um, so it's just kind of like people are tagging on the recycling thing as a marketing tool. Right. Um, the, the interesting, I have an interesting story. Uh, and I don't really know, maybe this is just, you know, I, I don't know why they haven't implemented it, but at Petmate, when I worked there, we actually made, so we had a factory a few blocks from the office, mm. or a few miles from the office, and we made all of the large products there. Oh, so cool. So all the litter boxes, all like the crates and the kennels. Wow. Because it's way cheaper to manufacture something and ship it in the U.S. Uh, because of shipping costs. Right. Like shipping something like a big dog crate overseas from China is incredibly expensive. Yeah. Those things are as big as tables, right? Yeah. Um, so in order to get the cost down, we had a factory in Texas, and we had visited sometimes and, you know, just review it. But we also had a resin uh, salvaging plant, too. Huh. So that was next to the factory where we would purchase um, uh, uh, like manufacturing offcuts and manufacturing waste from other companies and then turn that into plastic pellets that mm-hmm. then would get melted down or you know, colored and melted down to the specific, you know, whatever we needed to make the crates and the litter boxes. That's cool. But I didn't know that until like a year into the job. Like no one told me about it. Oh. And no one ever marketed it. It was purely a cost thing of like, hey, it's way cheaper to take everyone's scrap, melt it down, yeah, and turn it into pellets, and then manufacture a product than it is to do it in China. That's um, cool. So I don't know. It was just like interesting because it's. There, I feel like there's a lot of people doing sustainable work just because it's cost effective, right? Um, but they don't get the they accolade they because. But also, like, the thing is, is like, I don't know. And maybe they're not looking for it. Right, exactly. But, but yeah, like you, if you're not making it a part of your story, because there are so many people out there hawking it as as the core of their story. Right. It's, whereas, it's starting to seem a little bit of a hollow story in my opinion. Right. Like, it, well, it, it just kind of feels played out. Yeah. Like, it doesn't feel like, I mean, maybe, maybe 10 is, years ago it had a lot more weight. And maybe this is just the time we're in. Right. We're kind of in this sustainability renaissance. Yeah, so I don't know, that's pretty cool, but it's funny you you mentioned the large products thing because that's the reason why a company like my dad's, which does rotational molding, is able to stay competitive because products are just way too big. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, if you want to be, if you want to do local manufacturing, uh, make something rotable mold it. Yeah. Um, another thing I did want to note, all the manufacturing offcuts, it was really funny because, so, the, so I went to this recycling resin plant and the main source of their offcuts was diapers. And you think about that and you're like, oh my gosh, why are there diapers going into my products? But, it, but you got to calm down. It's not used to diapers. It's uh, the diaper manufacturing plant has, you know, a certain amount of like manufacturing offcuts right. where it's just like, oh yeah, it's just some extra stuff that we didn't use to put into the, the diapers. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll also see that a factory will accept a certain amount of like defective or you know. Yeah, if there's like a defect or something, there was like, I remember seeing, because there was like a big uh, back back field of just large silo bins and like rollers of all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, and I remember seeing like a big giant roll of like Dr. Pepper labels that I guess had been misprinted or something. Oh, So man. it was like, you know, it was a 10 foot tall roll, maybe right. five feet in diameter. Yeah. And just had dark pepper labels all over it. That's awesome. And, um, and that became the wallpaper of your room. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing, Nick. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so kudos to, it looks like uh, Kawanishi, Kawanishi is the designer of the medals. Cool. Um, so congratulations to them. Uh, they did a stellar job yeah, on beautiful. this on this metal. So anyway, I uh, thought that was a cool story. Uh, oh yeah, so uh, Junichi Kawanishi was the designer. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a cool story, and I think that that is something that we need to keep in mind always. For sure. With with these with any product is like I I feel like people are thinking that there are certain stories that can circumvent aesthetics. Yeah. And as a culture, I think that we, we of course need to tick off all these boxes, but I mean, just like as a, as a community, as industrial designers, like our obligation is to like beautify yeah. as well as give people like functional things. Right. Yeah. Always have the design first. Don't ever, lean on the sustainability to compensate for your under-designing. Right. Um, and so we have one last piece of design news. Yeah. And this is not necessarily about an industrial designer, but he is he is a significant figure within the design community. Definitely. Uh, and that is Stefan Sagmeister. Um, and so the announcement was that he was stepping away from his firm. Sagmeister and Walsh. Yeah, to to just pursue more personal projects and uh, and sort of, he's been doing all these like uh, exhibitions of different work. He recently did one on beauty. Hmm. Um, and uh, and so he's just gonna focus on that. And I guess it- So, and, and Stefan Sagmeister. Oh yeah, sorry. If, if you're not familiar with him, is a famous graph designer and then formed his company, Sagmeister Walsh, with Jessica Walsh. Yeah, who was just 25 when she became a partner at Sagmeister Walsh, which is, I mean, that's that's pretty impressive. That's young. Yeah. That's really young. And um, so I guess it kind of, it kind of all sparked when 
um, Walsh had told Sagmeister she wanted to leave to start her own agency. Oh, that's interesting. And so... And he was like, well, yeah, you probably... I actually am kind of done with this. Yeah. <laughs> and I think... I think maybe... I'm reading into this because I don't know, but yeah. I think, like, you know, maybe it was almost a similar story, because I... I was sort of seeing around the news about Johnny Ive leaving Apple that he had kind of like checked out mm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I wonder if like Sagmeister had kind of checked out and Jessica Walsh was like, you know what, I just want to do my own thing now. Right. And he was like, wait a minute, you know what, like just take all the like, clients. It's like, mutual. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, cause I can imagine he does seem very fueled by the, by his personal work and not really interested in producing commercial stuff. Yeah. Um, so he left, and now the company is just called Ann Walsh. Yeah. Which I thought was a joke at first, but it's literally now just Ann Walsh. Like Ampersand Walsh. I guess it makes sense. Again, I haven't read too much into like the, the uh, Jessica Walsh part of it. Right. But it seems like, you know, maybe it's a smart decision because it's like uh, this brand and Walsh, like we're working with you. Yeah. Um, they, they did a great job on the rebranding. Yes, um, for it, sure. It, it is really cool, but it just—it was a funny like when you look at it, you're like, oh wait, wait, is that right? Yeah. They just dropped the Sagmeister, and they still have the hand in there, the ampersand. Right. Um, um, no, I think it, I think it's good. So the the interesting thing about this to me, and and what the Fast Company article brought up about it is that a while ago, Stefan Sagmeister had put out this this idea. Um, that every seven years he was going to close down his studio to pursue personal projects. Right. And what's ended up happening is like, it, it seems like that, that personal work has become so intriguing and satisfying for him that he's completely left his studio. Like the whole idea was like in order to keep, to keep afloat or to like, to keep, be fresh, to be fresh. To, to do this, to, to close down the studio, but it's just ended up kind of having this opposite effect of like, he's gone, he's left. Yeah. And, and it makes me wonder, I, I don't know, it makes me wonder so many things because I did think that what he had observed was a very smart, up, like intelligent observation about like, if you work too much, what you end up doing is just like sort of repeating yourself and right. unless you take time to reflect and also just get away from your work to pursue things on a more individual level, you'll never produce anything fresh. Right. Now, you've, you've talked about this a little bit on the podcast. Was, did Sagmeister actually do personal projects on some way or is it more just like vacation slash? No, he did personal projects. Reflection time. He did. He, he was doing a lot like, and there's a TED talk of him. Okay like where he shows the work that he did during his sabbaticals. Okay, I gotta, we gotta link to that. I think the first one, he was in Bali, and one of the things that he was working on where, when he was there was his happiness movie, but also he was like working on all of these other little pieces. Um, actually, like a lot of pieces with like local artisans to like make physical things. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, he was definitely experimenting, like following certain, just like sort of whims, but he, I mean, like you have to, I, I imagine you agree with this, even when you're not working, you're 
like always kind of thinking about like a creative thing to do. Yes. To like right. pursue. Like you can't flip the switch off. For sure. And I think what he ended up doing in the process is finding something that satisfies him even more, which is are, are these like bigger projects, right. which he can then sort of exhibit and have conversations about. And it's yeah. not, it's not about producing commercial work. And it, you know, in this article, he was, he was like, he was very, very much like, like, I don't think that there's anything bad with doing commercial work. Like, that's not what I'm saying here. Right. Right. It's just that, like, for me, it's not satisfying anymore. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I kind of feel like I, I do get what he's saying because definitely as a, as an independent designer and, you know, the, the jobs come and go and sometimes you are in these situations where you don't have any clients. Yeah. You're not working on a, a client project and you you get a chance to work on that personal project that you've been willing to work on. Yeah. And it is it is really rewarding to, yeah. to jump like jump in on stuff that you have full control and full, you know, autonomy on. Right. I mean your your entire like I would say your entire Instagram and Instagram following is off of personal work. For sure. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, that's the thing about Instagram industrial design is like a lot of the people that are posting things and I, I know that we've said this before, but it is this, it is about pursuing things outside of work when maybe, especially as a young designer, you're not able to show the professional work that definitely, you're doing definitely. Um, so that you can show off your skills. And I mean, like I can definitely attest to how personal work has cropped up in ways like in, like down the road that I never imagined. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if I did do the, the Instagram thing, my skills would be, it would be nowhere near where I am right now. Right. Like just taking the extra time to hone my skills and, and practice every day. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, but. Yeah, so um, I think this is, I think this is really, really interesting. And maybe the thing is, is that maybe Sagmeister has always had that more artistic side mm. of of pursuing the individual goals, right. where you know, whereas like, if you want to be successful in doing work with other companies, maybe that individuality has to be sacrificed a little bit for sure. And um, and so maybe he like I, that would I mean it would be awesome to interview talk about people to interview Stefan Sagmeister. Is it get him on? <laughs> I mean, he's he's got time now. He's he's got time on his hands, man. I, I wonder if someone I wonder if someone at Kareem Rashid Studio listens to the podcast or or Sagmeister. I don't know, but if anybody does, <laughs> if anybody does, then it wouldn't be too much to ask to put it in front of your boss. Uh, that would be that would be awesome. But uh, yeah, it's uh, so that was our very design news heavy podcast. Do we have any? Uh, or at least topics. Yeah. Do we have any questions we, we to have, answer? We have some questions. We can answer some questions. Let's um, do it. Also, if you guys have have topics, I think we were kind of uh, we we're kind of low on topics this week, so we just decided to do all designers. Send in your topic ideas. Yeah. Um, and questions too. We are. I was searching down through. We're pretty far back in the email list now, so um, send in questions if you have a new one. And our Gmail is at minor. No, sorry. Our Gmail is minordetailspodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. That's the best way to get questions to us. Um, but yeah, we have a question from Jason. And Jason says, hey guys, my question for you is, 
What is ID grad school good for? My connections into the industry that I got in college have gone cold, and I'm still yearning for another step in ID. At the moment, I feel as if I could, as if it could provide a platform for me to evolve through a new and inspirational environment, even if it would be a bit pricey. If the Discord has any insight, I'd love to hear them as well. Um, yeah, I, I obviously you and I have not gone to grad school. No, we just got our bachelor's degree in, in industrial design. Um, I've considered it. Yeah. Yeah, and well, I mean, just in the fact that if you want to be a teacher, at least in you know this day and age, if you want to teach at a university and you want to be a full-time professor, like that's what you would need to do. Um, but kind of like with the whole, you know, his Sagmeister sabbaticals, like it is this kind of like isolated time where you can really dive into a topic. Right, so yeah, I mean, I guess my viewpoint on grad school is I've always seen it as a way to, I guess, supplement industrial design or, or branch out from industrial design. Mm -hmm. like, I don't know if it makes, at least, at least my opinion is, I don't know if it makes sense to get an undergrad in industrial design and then go to grad school for another two years for industrial design because then you'd just be doing the same thing unless you wanted to focus and say go to grad school for sustainability or go to grad school well, for like business of design or management or something. Yeah, like you want to you want to focus and you also want to take advantages of the resources of that particular program. Right. You know, I, I think that like going to grad school if I were to, it would be about working with a particular person that is teaching at that school or because that program has a particular resource or or they do something very specialized. Right. You know. Like but you know, can you see yourself going to grad school just to do another two years of industrial design practice? Like just normal industrial design. Well yeah, like uh, basically what I'm saying is is that I would do it if like you know, if it were to be a, like, basically to have a certain professor or something. Like, like if Craig or she was teaching grad school. Like, yeah, something like that. Okay. Something, something along those lines of like, because then you have that person's, you have that person's ear and that person is also interested in your success. Right. Like they're interested in the success of like whatever it is that you're investigating because Yes, you could do this, these investigations on your own, in your own time, but maybe you wouldn't have access to the types of people that could really guide you and nurture you to, right. like, to a really good conclusion. I, I, I think I agree with you, and I think, like, maybe to, to like, say it in a different way, I feel like you have to go to grad school with something that you want. Right. Right? You don't want to just do another two years. You want to go in whether it's because there's a certain professor there or because you want to branch out into a different kind of area. Or maybe or you have an idea that you kind of want to focus on. Right. Or maybe it's because like you want to get into a program that will set you up for like, you know, here's, 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 an, yeah, exactly. Here's another thing that happens often within the industrial design world is you go into school, you come out, you start working and you get stuck in an industry. Right. And I like I've certainly seen that happen, and it was something that I was very determined to avoid. Um, but it's something that happens, and maybe grad school is kind of like, yeah, it's it kind of gives you access once again to to like to getting closer to something that you're maybe more interested in. 
pursuing yeah. career-wise? Here's an interesting thought. Okay. <laughs> Give me that interesting thought. So, uh, you know, as 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 the the whole idea of getting a college degree is being a little bit, you know, I guess contested. But the resources are still there, right? Like right. Maybe that professor's there that you want, or that community is there that you want. What if you just took one class part time, just to be able to have access to the school's resources and be able to get into the building, and then just kind of sat in on classes? Because that happens a lot. People yeah. are asked to sit on sit on classes. Sure. That's the problem. I mean, the other the other thing about grad school, and I don't know if this is typical of ID grad school, but you can you can go in certain cases and be a TA or something right. where you are able to essentially go for free because you are also providing the university with a service. Yeah. And so in that way, you can do it a little bit more frugal boy-like. Right. I think, yeah, and I don't, I don't know the extent of Jason's situation, but it seems to me, like you say to me, that my connections to the industry have gone cold. I'm just yearning to take another step in ID. So it doesn't necessarily feel to me like he's looking to branch off or, or kind of focus. It kind of seems like he just wants to get back into the to the swing of things. Mm-hmm. So maybe that is a better route. I don't know. That's a uh, definitely we need to get some insight from the Discord on this one because neither of us have done yeah master's programs right. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question, and I don't know that there's a wrong answer unless your like finances. Would right. would suffer right. considerably. I mean, school is expensive. So. School is expensive. Um, you know, one thing actually to bring up something about uh, tangentially about Jessica Walsh, um, Timothy Goodman, who she did a book with called uh, I think it was Forty Days of Dating. Yes. He he when he went to school, he found out about all of these scholarships that people just don't know about. Like there, like there are banks that give scholarships. There's like scholarships for being a really tall person. Like there's, there's this world of scholarships that people are not aware of. And he essentially went to school at SVA, which is a very pricey program and essentially went for free because he, he found these scholarship programs. So that's another, that's like a way to maybe justify this. Where did you find, is this this in his book? He talked about this, I'm pretty sure on Design Matters podcast. Okay, definitely. Um, Yeah, so I think it was his first interview, but yeah, it was was a pretty interesting interview. That's interesting, because when I went to school, I definitely applied to as many scholarships as I possibly could. Yeah. Like, I, I, I... try to do what Timothy Goodman did, like search for all the obscure ones and everything. Yeah. And I didn't get any. None? I mean, I got, like, SCAD gave me a scholarship. Yeah. It wasn't, like, I didn't get a scholarship because I was ready. You didn't get, like, gingers in design. No, but I should have looked for that one. <laughs> I wonder how, what his technique was. I all these obscure scholarships. I don't know. He, did, I guess he just didn't push the ginger angle. Maybe they were like, we're not giving this ginger anything. There's not a lot of ginger. We've already given him all the coloring for his hair. Oh, man. But anyway, um, I, I think that's all the time, Nick, we really have for questions. All right. Should we do a shout-out? Shout-out of the week? Let's do the shout-out. Um, I found this guy, and this is, this guy's name is Dom Rickabane. Rikobi? 
I'm sorry, but I don't know how to pronounce it, but uh, it's at D-O-M-R-I-C-C-O-B-E-N-E. Yeah. And he's a, I guess a, he used to be an architect, now he's more of a uh, CNC master artist videographer. I don't really know what to call this guy, but he does these uh, really nicely produced videos of a CNC mill cutting out terrain. Yeah, out of whether it's wood or foam or anything, uh, and it's it's just more of like eye candy to be honest. Oh yeah, it's really really beautiful stuff, and uh, yeah, you, you you guys can check it out and you'll sit through these videos for hours like I did. But um, it's it is pretty crazy. What is it about? I feel like everybody loves a bit of like time lapse process porn. Yeah. Like, there's something so satisfying about it. Is it just that, like, we like seeing the transformation of something? I don't know what like, it is. Yeah, that's interesting. I also, he, he puts audio to it, and it's really great audio, and that's a big thing for me, too, is is that he adds in all the CNC sounds and stuff. Oh, Cause, yeah. Because when you do a time lapse, it's essentially just a camera that takes a photo every, you know, 30 seconds or something like that. Right. So there's no audio, and so he has to go back in and add all the CNC sounds. And um, you know I'm a fan of the, the audio. You love that audio. Yeah. Um, yeah, but really, it's cool, cool video work. I wonder if he uses robotic arms like that, that other shout out that we did for, oh, yeah. That's right. for filming this stuff. But uh, definitely go check him out. Dom Rickabine. For sure, I'm willing to. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. Give us some five-star reviews, guys. Hey, like, subscribe. Right. YouTube. Follow Spotify, YouTube. Click the little bell button. Click that bell. Um, I think that's it, right? Smash that bell. Uh, I think that's, yeah, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Rate, rate us five stars. It really helps us out in the ratings. Give us a thumbs up. Comment, like, just tell your friends. <laughs> tell your friends tell about us. Tell your friends. And uh, as always, I'm at Nick P. Baker. And I'm at I Draw on Receipts. Peace out. Later. One day. Oh my god, Nick. No, did you not record? James. No. No. It happened.